All right, this morning we're going to look at the divided kingdom and from the Old Testament background's perspective. So I know that we have a mix of students in the class. Some of you have already had OT surveys, which um, that's actually the goal. You're supposed to have that before you do OT backgrounds, but some of you haven't had it. So a little bit of a difference between that, and sometimes I overlap or I go back and forth, but in an OT survey, um, you're, you're looking at the structure of the book, themes in the book, and, and you're kind of heavy on the text. And in the backgrounds, we're looking more at what's going on in the culture, the surrounding aspects, the geography, the archaeology, etc. All right. So we pay more attention to that than we do to um, a literary outline and literary structure uh, of the text. Although we may, we may refer to that. Okay. So quick review and, and uh, context from David to Solomon, as we looked at last week in the United. Um, kingdom. Samuel was a transitionary figure. He was prophet, priest, and judge, but he was not a what? He was not a king. Okay. We looked at Saul, the the first king, and that was from 1050 to 1010 BC. And we talked about several of the different aspects related uh, to Saul, and then we looked at David. All right. Now David's going to be important for the divided kingdom. Because David's actions contribute to what takes place in the divided kingdom. All right? As does Solomon's, who is the son of David. So, I want to touch on a couple of things that we, we didn't really touch on last week. Technically, these would go under United Monarchy, but I'm putting it here as, as part of our review. David's triumphs. Okay? David was a man after God's own heart, 1 Samuel 13, 14. His will was completely committed to the will of God. And as a dedicated servant of God, he was used by God to perform mighty acts for the sake of his chosen people. And you can see in the various points on the right side here, some of the things he did. Okay, He's the king. He conquers Jerusalem. Uh, he returns the ark. He's got the Davidic covenant. You've got He defeats the Philistines, Moab, Ammon, Syria. These are all good things. These are all fitting into what God um, had planned, and God's plan for the Israelites to conquer the land, and to be in the land, and ultimately to be with him, because the goal was for God's presence to be there with his people in God's place, and all that together. So that's the good. Unfortunately, there's another side. <clears throat> and this other side is what leads us to what is going to be our, our primary topic for this morning. You can kind of <clears throat> line out Second Samuel, like this, and you got a turning point in chapter eleven with David's transgressions. So all these good things, the triumphs are on the left side; they're building up to climax, and then it's a turning point, and it's all downhill. And that turning point <coughs> is the Bathsheba incident. When he takes Bathsheba, and then he kills her husband Uriah, murders him tries to cover all this up. That's what leads to the troubles in his house and the troubles in his kingdom, this turning point. Okay, Some of these troubles are Amnon and Absalom, and then David having to flee. And this is really the backstory for the divided kingdom movement. And so his duplicity... is evidenced also 
with all of his wives that he has. Okay, so these are his wives. These are the seven he had in Hebron. These are at least two more from Jerusalem, plus his concubines. And so David didn't have nearly as many as Solomon, but he had a bunch. His troubles, though, I want to highlight just quickly. His adultery I mentioned in 11.4, 2 Samuel. The murder of Uriah. Okay. <clears throat> he repents, but the kid dies. Okay, because your sin hurts other people. So I tell my kids all the time, your sin hurts other people. Amnon's, what? Your sin hurts other people. Yeah. Amnon's incest in chapter 13, verse 14. <clears throat> Amnon is then murdered by his brother. Absalom tries to usurp the throne. Then he's murdered. Oh, these are both David's sons. So remember, after David dies, someone's going to become king, right? So there's this movement between who's going to become the king, which son is it going to be for which women, which woman. And then he does a census, which he's not supposed to do, and Joab kind of warns him against that. And that results in a plague where, where thousands die as well. So, consistently illustrating the life of David's household is the principle that a disobedient life is a troubled life. David doesn't get these things under control, and they kind of spiral out of control. And, as I said, the turning point is this incident with Bathsheba. From then on, things go downhill. So, when Solomon comes on the scene as the next, the third, and the, the last king of the United Monarchy, Solomon comes on the scene in an age of rivalry. And David is old. And Solomon is, is put on the throne because Bathsheba intervenes with Nathan the prophet um, because of another rivalry about who is going to become king. So um, Adonijah is not... Uh, on this list either, but we could continue with the troubles and talk about Adonijah as well. So that backdrop is important for understanding how we get to the divided kingdom. Solomon, Israel's divided king, his divided heart, okay, which really originated with his daddy, all right, even though David is the man after God's own heart, okay. So the Bible says that. It says that he was good, and it also says, except for the incident with Bathsheba. Well, the incident is a big enough deal that it trickles down in this whole situation. So Solomon is 940 to, to 900. We talked last week about what his name means, and we talked about it's a time of peace and prosperity, wealth, women, and wine. Assyria is in a period of decline, and Egypt, and his alliances with the Phoenicians. Well, the alliances with the Phoenicians are not going to end with him. The alliances with the Phoenicians are actually going to continue into the divided kingdom and are going to prove to be a massive snare that is going to bring out the wrath of God through Elijah and Elisha, and then later on as it trickles down to the south through another marriage alliance as well. <coughs> he reorganized the uh, tribes, as we mentioned, into taxing districts, and he's a, he's a master builder. And so we, we looked at that last week. Some of... Um, his buildings, and another issue for if, if David has a turning point of Bathsheba, which brings about Solomon, right? Where Solomon comes from. Solomon's turning point is his building projects. 
and how he moves from a focus on God and God's temple to his own kingdom and his own kingdom building. Okay? And so that's the turning point for him. He expands the city as we mentioned. Alright? I mentioned about Gezer last week. And his divided heart, 1 Kings 11. King Solomon loved many foreign women in addition to Pharaoh's daughter, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidian, and Hittite women, from the nations that the Lord had told the Israelites about, do not intermarry with them, and they must not intermarry with you, because they will turn you away from me to their gods. Solomon was deeply attached to these women, and he loved them. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and they turned his heart away from the Lord. When Solomon was old, his wives seduced him to follow other gods. He was not completely devoted to Yahweh as God, as his father David had been. <laughs> so, this is what leads to a divided kingdom. Once Solomon dies, the kingdom does not easily pass on to a son to maintain continuity, but instead is going to break up. In 1 Kings 11, verse 11 to 13, he continues, it says, The Lord said to Solomon, Since you have done this and did not keep my covenant and my statutes, which I commanded you, I will tear the kingdom away from you. Just like who? What other king? Saul. Saul. Just like Saul. I will tear it away from you and give it to your servant. However, I will not do it during your lifetime because of your father David. I will tear it out of your son's hand. Yet I will not tear the entire kingdom away from him. I will give one tribe to your son because of my servant David and because of Jerusalem that I choose. So God is faithful to his promise. If it weren't for the Davidic covenant that God had promised to David, then Rehoboam wouldn't even get anything. But because of that, Rehoboam will. And who's the servant he's referring to? It's going to be Jeroboam, the military man. You've seen that probably in world history. It works the same way. If you look at who takes over kingdom, it's usually the military, right? Yeah, well, Jer Jeroboam was, was a military guy for him. <laughs> so Solomon's divided heart leads to the divided kingdom. So the divided kingdom covers post-Solomon till the fall of the northern kingdom. Alright, so we're going to go all the way down to 722 B.C. So 971 to 722 B.C. It covers from 1 Kings 12 all the way to 2 Kings 25 and the overlapping material in 2 Chronicles chapters 10 through 36. <clears throat> A world history um, outline demonstrating how they overlap between, on the top here you have Syria, Mesopotamia, uh, the second line is Israel, then Judah, and then Egypt, okay? So this chart comes from the Zondervan um, Atlas of the Bible. This shows some of the, the different rulers, so in Israel, for instance, we're going to talk about these guys in a minute, uh, Jeroboam, Nadab is there, Baasha, Omri is a pretty important historical guy, he doesn't get much scriptural text, but historically... Ahab and Jezebel, they're going to be pretty important. Jerem and bloody Jehu, as I call him. And then in Judah, we've got Rehoboam we'll talk about. There's Abijah. Asa has a pretty long reign. Uh, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, Ahaziah, Ataliah, and Joash. So there's a couple of women in particular. I call them the Wicked Witch of the North and the South. And they are uh, Jezebel, and right there, and Ataliah. Alright? And then the, the last guy up here in the north is Jehu. I call him Bloody Jehu. We'll talk about why in, in a few minutes. <coughs> Ahab and Jezebel is the time period 
when Elijah and um, Elisha show up. So I have um, two handouts for you today. You just want to. So as we go through this, if you can keep these two handy, these will help you out. Kings, and one is a map. And I do apologize, I didn't hit the, the right printer setting. You know how sometimes it says, you know, fill the page or fit to print or whatever. So on your map, uh, it's supposed to have Dan up at the top, and it got chopped off. It should have printed like this, but it blew it up a little bit. So Dan is all the way at the top. All right, so when we mention places, though, this would be quick for you to reference because there's not a map on every slide. <coughs> there's probably not any left over. Just, it's probably just enough. The chart on the Kings is actually a page from um, some notes from Dr. Derushi. Um, and there's two aspects to that. On the front page you've got a, a timeline chart which you've seen before. And then you have the prophets. But the back page is what I want you to look at. The back page lists all the kings of the divided kingdom. And I want you to notice how they are divided up so that you can quickly re refer to them. On the left side is Judah, or the kingdom of the south, the southern kingdom. And on the right side is Israel, or the northern kingdom. And then they're listed all the way down. Now... If you do some reading on the divided kingdom, you will come into a little bit of a discrepancy between whether there's 20 kings or 19 kings. Um, so, and uh, the truth is, I've taught it both ways. So, it's easiest for our purposes and uh, to just go with here and to go with 20 and 20. So, you've got the left side and the right side. And the way the chart is organized is they're actually in line with each other. So if you find one and you go across, that's, that's the king that's ruling on the other part of God's uh, kingdom. Also, if you look at <coughs> the right side, okay, so Israel, you'll notice they're, they're divided into their dynasties, okay, Roman numerals. Look at the left side, you don't see any of that. That's because everybody on the left side is from the line of David. So it's all one dynasty. The other thing is, if you look, I think on the left side, well, he highlights in bold two of them, Hezekiah and Josiah, as um, the two best kings. But there's eight kings that are given kind of the thumbs up. They're not, they might not be completely good, but there's kind of eight kings that are classified as good. Um, in the south. There are no good kings in the north. So the bold on the right, that is not because they are good. There are no good kings on the north. They're probably, I'm not sure actually why those two are bolded. He made this, not me. But if I'm going to guess, it's the opposite of good. They're the worst. From Jeroboam on, what you'll see repeated is when you read the book of Kings is they did evil just like or worse than 
and it's compared to Jeroboam. Okay? So we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. Um, so we're, we're going to uh, use this as a reference tool, and then we're also going to kind of follow uh, what Laney did in his book. He divided the area into conflicts, alliances, independence, and then the Assyrian domination. So I'll also refer to that as we're going through our lecture this morning. Okay? Any questions on those two handouts? <coughs> I just thought that it would be probably easier for you if you had them right at your, your desk that you could refer to. So <coughs> the divided kingdom map, what does this look like? This should look pretty much just like the handout that I just gave you. So the green area on the screen is the north, which becomes known as Israel, or sometimes Ephraim. The, the south is Judah, the purple on the screen. <coughs> you can see it's quite obvious which one is larger. The northern kingdom, Israel, is often called Ephraim by the prophets. They have greater wealth, they have greater power, they have greater size. So they got, worldly speaking, like everything going for them, all right? However, <coughs> it's not all about the worldly view, right? Their location is going to run from Dan to Bethel. All right? Now that might confuse you with another term, from Dan to Beersheba. That used to be what it was. So Dan to Beersheba would have been from the top all the way down to the bottom. Okay, That was the land of Israel. Well, now it's divided, so he has from Dan to Bethel. Okay, in the north. Galilee, the hills of Samaria, portions of the Transjordan, including Gilead and North Moab, and then portions of the International Coastal Highway and the King's Highway, which is what brought them their wealth. They control those toll booths, you know, as people are traveling, the merchants. They will make Phoenician um, alliances, and this will bring in money, but it's also going to bring Baal, and that's going to be their downfall. Elijah and Elisha, somewhere around 850, <coughs> are going to show up on the scene. There's several capitals in the regions of Manasseh. Shechem, Tirzah, and then Samaria will become the capital from 850 on until it's uh, destroyed in 722 when the Assyrians show up. So 20 kings, 10 dynasties, and how many good kings? None, that's right. Okay, They're all bogus. The south, <coughs> much more isolated much more in the hilly country, much more geographic boundaries that keep them isolated. They don't have the access to the, the toll roads. goes from Benjamin to Kadesh Barnea. Okay, so uh, I don't know if all of those are on your, your map or not that I passed out. But there's no international routes. The commercial link south to the Red Sea port of Isian, um, I think there's a typo in there. Maybe not. He's in Gebert. It's in uh, Egypt area. And Carab Caravan links to the Negev. So they had south and southwest of them. They did have some links to some trade routes, okay? Um, but oftentimes there was competition with those. Jerusalem was both the political and religious center. And every king except for Athaliah came from the line of David. We'll talk about Athaliah a little bit later. She's uh, related to the north, actually. They survive 130 years after Israel does. 20 kings, 1 dynasty, and 8 good kings. Okay? That's kind of the synopsis. Conflict. So this is the first category that um, Laney 
textbook you have kind of puts together to look at these areas. It's 1 Kings 12 to 16, and it's the year 931, right after Solomon, until 875. 1 Kings 14.30 says, There was a war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam throughout their reigns. So you have civil war. Okay, What used to be a united kingdom is now a kingdom that's at war with each other. <coughs> Jeroboam the first. In 1 Kings 12, 26 and following, he said to himself, The way things are going now, the kingdom might return to the house of David. If these people regularly go to offer sacrifices in the Lord's temple in Jerusalem, the heart of the people will return to their lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will murder me and go back to the king of Judah. So, Jeroboam sets up shop, but he's got fear issues. Now, it's interesting because actually God, through a prophet, already told him that if he would be faithful to God, that God would establish him as ruler. But he didn't trust. Instead, he's afraid that the people are so connected to a couple of things, David in Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem, that if they go back there, they're going to realign themselves, and he's going to lose, lose his whole kingdom. And so he institutes some things that he thinks humanly is going to prevent that, and this is going to be the downfall. So they're already done before they start. Now, why does Jeroboam even get in this position? Because after Solomon dies, Rehoboam is an arrogant young punk and doesn't listen to any counsel. And the people, because Solomon had built so much and was so wealthy, but he did that on the backs of slaves and even his own people. And they were tired of it. They were exhausted. They, they were wiped out. And so they were begging Rehoboam, ease up. And he's like, you think my daddy was harsh? Well, you see me. And when, when that was his response, after three days of thinking about it, that's when Jeroboam said, okay, we're out of here. And he took ten tribes, and they split. <clears throat> so, the religious idolatry that Jeroboam promoted is the problem, though. Dan, where graven images and corrupt priests had lived in the idolatry during the judges' time period, okay, Bethel, just a few miles north of Jerusalem on the ridge route linked to Abraham and Jacob, which is uh, an important side note because this, this helps the people of Israel connect with their past. You know, Abraham is, is their granddaddy. He's the father of the faithful movement that God has started. So by connecting to what took place at Bethel there, he brings in a historical connection with what God was doing with the people. So it's no longer Dan to Beersheba, it's Dan to Bethel. The capital's at Shechem, and then to Tirzah. Eventually, <coughs> it'll go to Samaria. So this idea and this movement from Dan to Bethel. It's a 50-acre site at Dan. So when we think of these cities, I don't know, what, what size is this campus? Anybody here know? You know um, Church of the Cross, First Baptist Central Florida, CFCA? You guys know what that is? Good Homes in 50, the big cross? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So that's 40 acres. All right? Now, I think that's before they sold off five. So where the Walgreens is and the um, Aldi and all those stores right there on the 50 side, 
So I think that's five acre strip right there. So if you include that, okay, in the whole piece of property, so it goes along, you got the 408, you got good homes, you got uh, 50 colonial, mm -hmm. and in the back, then you got uh, a road that goes to those apartments. So that one section, that's 40 acres. Okay, so Dan is 50 acres. So it's 10 acres more. All right? <laughs> I'm, I'm emphasizing this for a reason. When we think about these cities, it's not this sprawling Orlando metro area. Like, the whole city is 50 acres. The whole city fits on that campus over there. And this campus is much larger, so I don't, I don't know how big this is. So this would have been like, I don't know, maybe two dams, you know, would fit here or something. <coughs> so that's what Dan is, all right? It's up there in the north, and he sets up these bulls, all right? This is actually excavated archaeological work, okay? This is obviously not. This is a, a grid work for the altar, so they think the altar was right here. Right, I've been to the site. And this is where they, they would have offered, you know, the real cow on the altar <coughs> to this bowling cow. Surrounding plans are very fertile, etc. So he establishes a religious center here. And the archaeologist was Abraham uh, Biron. He excavated Dan and uncovered a large podium, 19 meters long, built of ashlar stones, which he identified as part of Jeroboam's uh, cultic or religious structure. The podium was destroyed and rebuilt sometime in the connection with the reign of uh, Ben-Hadad in 1 Kings 15. Baron first interpreted the structure as an open-air high place, but more recently scholars believe the podium was a foundation for a temple. So there's a flight of five stone steps that lead from a square enclosure, approach the temple, and then there's a sacrificial altar, it's five by five meters and a small square horned altar and fragments of a larger horned altar were found nearby. So all these different altars, a sacrificial altar site, all at this um, site here, and possibly uh, even a full complex. <coughs> all at home. During Jeroboam's reign, he lost territory. Okay, um, Damascus he lost. He also lost uh, Gibbethon in the southwest, and Moab, which Omri later retook. Shishak of Egypt invaded, this, um, despite providing asylum from Solomon earlier. So earlier when um, Jeroboam had to, had to flee during Solomon's reign, he went to Shishak, and he was allowed to stay there. Now Shishak comes in and is going to war with him. Um, a jasper seal belonging to the servant of either Jeroboam the first or second was found in 1903 at Megiddo. It says, Shema, the servant of Jeroboam. So this picture that you see on the screen here, now this is related to Shishak and his um, conquering. So it's Shishak conquering his foes. And then in the lower right, they're pleading for mercy. In the lower left are, are captured enemies and cities represented. So here you have this uh, person down there that's pleading for their life. It's kind of hard to make out some of it on that relief. But, and then these over here are all these um, insignias demonstrating the cities that he has captured. So that is, is part of what took place um, during Jeroboam's reign. Now, on the flip side, while that's going on, you got Rehoboam. So... Rehoboam and 
chapters 11 to 14, his lack of support is indicated by his need to go to Shechem to be crowned king. So he doesn't do it in Jerusalem. He goes to Shechem. The rift from David's time may still have been felt. In 2 Samuel 20, it says, Now a wicked man, a Benjamite, named Sheba, son of Bichri, happened to be there. And he blew the ram's horn and shouted, We have no portion in David, no inheritance in Jesse's son. Each man to his tent, Israel. So all the men of Israel deserted David and followed Sheba, son of Bichri. But the men of Judah from the Jordan all the way to Jerusalem remained loyal to their king. That's 2 Samuel. And so this happened in the past. And so the thought is that maybe some of that rift and this antagonism towards David is still going on. And so Rehoboam goes anyways to Shechem. That's a memorable site. You can look at some of the, our previous um, presentations for some more information um, on that. So, Rehoboam goes to Shechem to be crowned um, king. Trying to reconfirm and gather the support of the people. Because he's been arrogant, he's lost ten of the tribes, and he needs to somehow regain some support. Um, Shechem on the map, okay, is right here. And this is the ridge route. And so Shechem has ready access both to the ridge route and also the Wadi Faria road from Shechem. So this enabled many people to travel to get to Shechem so they could be part of this coronation of him and also to you know celebrate, I suppose, the, um, the new king and, and what's going to happen next. Rehoboam did a lot of fortifying. Um, Shishak, as we just mentioned, Shishak came in and became a thorn to Israel because, just like as we've seen with Babylon and Assyria and everything else, or Egypt, doesn't matter which, when there's a change of kings, that's a perfect opportunity, right? Because there's some instability in the kingdom. And so especially here when it's dividing amongst leaders. So you don't have just one son taking over the whole thing. So that, that means there's further instability. So Shishak sees an opportunity. He sees the weakness of the divided kingdom. And he makes plans for the invasion of both Judah and Israel. So in response, Rehoboam constructed 15 fortresses in Judah. Okay, you can read about them in 2 Chronicles 11, 5-12, to ward off the attack. So these were located in the Shephelah, which we've looked at before and the southern hill country and along the edge of the Judean desert. So by 925 B.C., within five years of the death of Solomon, the empire of his son was basically confined to the hill country of Judah. So Solomon has this big expansion, which that's on the last week's slide, and it was also in the very beginning um, of this week. Big expansion. Five years after his death, the king was cut in half, and then shrunk down to little hill country area. That's why, um, you know, Ecclesiastes talks about all your work, you know, vanity or, or frustratingly enigmatic, um, because you have no idea what's going to happen after you go. Solomon builds up this huge thing, and within five years what happens? Boom. Gone. So Shishak's invasion of Judah is briefly described in 1 Kings 14. 
um, but his own inscriptions uh, document it much more fully. Psalms 5th year, 925 B.C., and it continues on uh, from the coastal plain into the hill country of Benjamin by the Beth Horon Ridge, as well as along one of the ridges to the south. So, although Jerusalem was threatened, it avoided capture because Rehoboam paid large sums of tribute to Shishak. He was also fortifying while he was doing this. So, from Shishak's account of his campaign, it was difficult to determine his exact um, you know, way he came in. But the point here is it's dwindling down in size, and he's putting these fortifications up, which is what these, these lines are here. Okay? And these become these fortress cities. Okay? So he's fortifying the cities, and then he's got these areas. So you can kind of see we want to focus on right here and kind of keep that uh, area safe. Uh, you can see this one here. Lachish is going to be attacked later on. We'll talk about that in a little bit. That's a pretty uh, significant historical um, siege. So, <coughs> continuing with Shishak, these yellow or golden arrows coming in here are the direction of some of his campaigns, okay? So he comes in here out of Egypt, all right, up the coastline through the Philistine territory, and then what's this territory up here? If this is Philistine, what's the one above it? Phoenician, Phoenician right, okay? So Philistines and Phoenicia, it's not listed here, but well, it's listed way up there. So, comes up the Philistine area, and he cuts in through all these areas, alright? And up north, same thing, cutting in to those areas as well. and the um, Egyptians, you also have the continual conflicts going on between the north and the south, between Jeroboam and Rehoboam. One of the things that they're constantly doing is they're pushing back the boundary lines. So if you look at the map that I handed out to you, and you see where Bethel is, that's... Um, in the middle of your page, really. And then Jerusalem is just below it. It's on the other side of the line, though, right? So that line, okay, Rehoboam and Jeroboam are trying to push back and forth all right, throughout their reigns. And not just them, but they're fighting over territories in that um, area. <coughs> A couple of the towns that you might want to just note is um, Ramah, Geba, and Mizpah. Okay? Now, I don't know that um, they're actually listed on the map that I gave you, but they're all in that border area. And those are the towns that are constantly being disputed about, and they keep changing hands, okay? Asa and Basha will um, be doing the same thing later on in the time period. Alright? So, Tributes being given to Shishak. They're fighting over the, the borders. At the same time, the Arameans, now this is not on a slide, but at the same time, the, the Arameans, um, which is this map, 
also involved in the conflicts, okay? Damascus was a major city at the intersection of the International Coastal Highway and the King's Highway. Um, it's been called the oldest continually inhabited city in the world, all right? So I guess it and, it and Jericho are two of these uh, oldest inhabited type cities, right? So Aram, you can see it up there, all right, which is Syria, and Damascus. So even in the New Testament, we know this. Paul was on the road to where? Damascus, Damascus okay? And so what you end up having now is you've got to step back and look at the big picture. This is Israel. Judah's below them. Arab or Syria is here, okay? And then who's, who's the world power that we're afraid of right now? It's going to be Assyria, right? They're over here. Egypt's over here. So as Assyria is, is pushing in this way, okay, your next two countries, Aram and now Israel, because they're separated, they're going to look at forming an alliance to push back Assyria. So Israel is going to go back and forth between fighting with Judah and then wanting Judah to be part of their alliance. Judah is going to have to make a decision about whether they want to do that, or they might want to make an alliance with Egypt, or, as you're going to see happens, they might just bypass them and try to make a deal with Assyria. So that's, they do that one, the last one I just said. So <coughs> Damascus and Assyria, or not Assyria, but uh, Syria, Aram, all, are all part of that um, aspect there. Um, David defeated Damascus, and he had put a garrison there. But Solomon lost Damascus to Rezin. Ben-Hadad I attacked Israel on behalf of Asa about 900, okay? And then Ben-Hadad II attacked Israel during the reign of Ahab. But in 853, he appealed to Ahab for help against Shalmaneser III. So you're not going to remember all those dates, but... The point is, this constant struggle that's going on back and forth here. Alright. This is the map that you have. Okay? Uh, except, you got Dan cut off right up there. So you can kind of see the part that you're missing, okay? <coughs> so, what used to be from Dan to Beersheba is now in the north just Dan to Bethel, okay? And then you basically got Jerusalem to Beersheba on the Judah side. Now, what I'm going to do here is I'm, I'm briefly going to hit some of the kings, all right? And then I'm going to try to look at some archaeological material that is related to the kings that has been found or that gives evidence to their reigns and what took place. For the northern kingdom, which is going to be the, our primary focus today, I think next week the way that uh, Lainey has his book is once the northern kingdom is taken out, okay, yeah, he does the divided monarchy until 722, um, and then he does the solitary kingdom of Judah from 722 to 586. So the next 130 years just focuses on Judah. So we'll spend more time with Judah next week. <coughs> nope, two weeks. We're on spring break next week. And... So today, the, the next one is Nadab, okay? So Nadab is 910 to 909. And again, if you look at different books and you see they're off by a year or so, don't worry about it, all right? Just go with it. 
So Nadab succeeds his father, reigning at Tirzah for just two years. The only biblical record we have is his siege of Gibbethon in the Philistine territory, which his father had lost. And during this siege, Nadab was assassinated by Basha, probably one of his generals, who then took over rule. So you give him just a couple lines, you know, and we don't have much else about him. So we haven't found a whole lot. In contrast, Omri just gets a little bit in, in the Bible, but he has quite a bit in the historical books. <coughs> so Basha has a, a longer rule. He rules 24 years. Little is recorded of his reign, except that he continued in conflict with Judah. So you still got this civil war between the north and the south, pushing back and forth, arguing over the boundaries, and also, as relates to the international conflict going on. <coughs> he attempted to fortify Ramah, which is four miles north of Jerusalem. All right, so it's just a little distance of, uh, north. Asa, the king of Judah, retaliated by persuading Ben-Hadad, of Damascus to attack Basha's northern cities. Ben-Hadad attacked, and Basha had to cease his efforts at Ramah to protect his own land. Okay? So, this, this is this is how the, the sisters war. Alright? Now, this gets God upset also. Okay? He condemns them for this behavior. So, what's this? X marks the spot. What's X? Jerusalem, right? Okay. Divided kingdom. All right. So Aram. All right. Israel. Judah. All right. And so Asa, king of Judah, right? So he's down here, right? And Basha in the north, all right? He's trying to... Fortify Ramah, which is four miles north of Jerusalem. So what are we arguing over? Boundary territories, right? Right? That's where he's at. So what does Asa do? He retaliates by persuading Ben-Hadad of Aram to come attack here. Why? Because it's hard to fight a battle in two places at once. And so now what does he have to do? He's got to turn from fighting here and send his forces back up here to stave off the Aramaeans. That works great for Judah because it gets sister off his back. Make sense? So that's what's going on with that. Zimri, Elah succeeded his father Basha, and he rules two years. Short term, right? Don't care too much about him. He also wanted the Philistine city of Gibbethon, and he sent his general Omri, he's going to become important, to lay siege to it. While Omri was there, Zimri, another general, assassinated Elah and proclaimed himself king. When Omri, still at Gibbethon, learned of the assassination, he had himself declared king by his own army and returned to Tirzah, where he put down Zimri's rebellion and took over. Okay? So, internal conflicts in the military, Omri takes over, and then Omri is going to be the guy that we're going to spend some time on, and that has some archaeological evidence and some buildings that he uh, does, etc. Oh, my clicker stopped.
So he began a dynasty that was going to last three generations, but pressures from the enemies were ever-present. The Aramean state to the north, okay, was rising in power. The king, Benhadad I, left a stella near Aleppo, which shows that he was able to extend his power as far north as Syria by 850 B.C. In addition to the threat of um, Aramean, a great danger was rising in the east. Syria was becoming a world power, okay, that's over here, okay, under Ashurnasirpal. With him, the period of the Assyrian Empire is said to have begun. He marched his army across the Euphrates and occupied land as far west as Biblos, Sidon, and Tyre of the, the Mediterranean. So you've got the Assyrians company rising in power, Aram's there, and then you've got the warring civil war that's going on there. Okay? Omri was a strong ruler. Testimony of this is provided by Assyrian rulers living a century later who still refer to Israel as the land of Omri. So 100 years later, the Assyrians are referring to this area as the land of Omri. So that tells us that they thought um, highly of him to some degree in the sense that he was uh, important or maybe another way of saying it, a thorn in their flesh, a thorn in their side, right? A burn in the saddle. <clears throat> All three of these guys make reference to him. Omri built a new capital for Israel, the city of Samaria. So when you think of Omri, okay, Omri's the builder. All right, and Samaria becomes the new capital. From now until 722, when it is taken down. Look at your map, you'll find this right in the middle of the page, right there. All right. Samaria proved to be almost impregnable stronghold. Excavation has revealed excellent workmanship with walls, some of which were 24 feet thick. Okay, imagine trying to batter your way through those, right? Omri must have secured a Phoenician alliance, as implied by the marriage of his son, Ahab, to the Phoenician princess Jezebel. It's likely he made a treaty with her father, um, King Ethbel. Okay, so one of the things that we're going to want to pay attention to is this genealogy because this is going to play an important part, okay? So, Omri, okay, he's Phine uh, has Phoenician alliances, okay? So, uh, along the uh, Mediterranean Sea there, the northern part of, of the country, um, Ahab is his son. Who does Ahab marry? Jezebel. Jezebel, right? Okay. <coughs> This is one of those trickle-down effects. Like, you don't realize the decisions you make, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's what this is going to be as well. And that's why I'm putting it on the board, because we're going to come back to that in a second. All right. This is a Moabite stone found by a German missionary in 1898 near the Arnon River in Dibon. And it lists victories of Misha from Moab. Over the Israelites, on it he writes, Omri, king of Israel, conquered Misha's father, but Chemosh, his god, had enabled him to throw off Omri's tribute. Okay, so again, you have another archaeological find demonstrating this Omri of the Bible in the time period that it really is um, legit. Not that you need archaeology to prove the Bible's right, but... <clears throat> so, Omri to... Ahab, all right? So that's the period of 
Omri. It actually says, I'm going to go back for a second. I need to change the batteries in this. I want to talk about that Moabite stone for a second. Um, the translation of that says, uh, Misha, son of Chemosh, Misha's king, uh, the Dibonite. My father governed Moab for 30 years, and then I reigned after my father. I made a high place for Chemosh and Karho. As for Omri, king of Israel, he oppressed Moab for many years. For Chemosh was furious with his country. Now, just as a quick side note, that's very similar to what you find in the book of Judges with God and being angry with his people, and he oppresses them with the enemy. Does that make sense? The parallel there? Okay. He also said, I will cast down Moab. In my days he spoke, and he lived in, uh, during his time and in the days of his sons, 40 years. Yet Chemosh, um, then there's a big break. And it skips a whole bunch of lines. That's like line 8, and then it skips down to line 18 on the translation. Like One of the things is that when you find stuff like this, you see, you see the difference between here and here? Yeah, so they're missing sections of uh, the text. It says um, something about the hearts of Yahweh in line 18 dragging them before Chemosh, and Israel's king built something or other. And then it talks about the house of David inhabiting a horror name. And so you have David, you've got Omri, you've got the, the Israelite peoples mentioned in this um, stone. And so that's kind of a, a pretty cool find. We have uh, a lot more in this next section. So the alliance, I keep trying to use this when it's, it's dead. Uh, the alliance from 874 to 835 BC. So instead of being in conflict, okay, Israel and Judah, now there's going to be an alliance that's formed. And uh, how does Solomon always get his alliances? Marriage. Marriage. Well, I've already put it on the board. How do you think this alliance starts out? Yes. Okay, so Ahab, 1 Kings 16.30. Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight more than all who were before him. All right? Jeroboam and Ahab are these guys that are like, they're the, the, um, the marker, if you will, for the level of evil. Ahab's daughter, okay, Athaliah, married Jehoram. bring with her? Her veil, her gods, right? She brings her false pagan gods. What does Athaliah learn at home? So what gets brought to Judah? You see how all this works? So this is why God had commanded his people they're not to marry these foreign wives. It's not because he was racist. It has to do with their faith. It has to do with the issues of what spiritual um, uh, influences they're going to have. Alright? So, Ahab's daughter. <coughs> so, guess what's going to come now? This is going to bring Baal worship in, and God can't stand that, right? The Bible says he's a jealous God, which means he protects his own, right? And he protects his name. 
And so that's not going to be permissive. Permissive? Is that a word? That's not permissible. And so who's going to show up now? Elisha, Elisha and Elisha, right? The prophets. Here come the prophets. Who are the prophets? They're the covenant enforcers. They're God's cops. They're coming in to rain on your parade because you're in the wrong parade. Now, the um, images on the screen are the Stella of Shalmaneser from the Battle of Karkar and a Jezebel seal. Okay? And so a seal would be something that they would use to demonstrate that uh, they had approved, um, you know, something in writing or, or whatever else. Okay? So this is the beginning of this influence between the, the north and the south and these uh, pagan countries. So excavations at Samaria revealed that Ahab built impressive um, walls around the royal quarter of the city. This was a double wall divided into rooms by partitions. Uh, to the north, the outer wall was about six feet thick, the inner four feet, and the space between about 23 feet deep. Archaeologists from Harvard digging at Samaria have also found a palace that Ahab built which contained within it a room where ivories were stored. The room is mentioned in the Bible in 1 Kings 22:39, which says, Now the rest of the acts of Ahab and all he did and the ivory house which he built and all the cities which he built, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? Um, and so you, you have both archaeological evidence, you have biblical evidence, and they put these two things together, and it you know helps us have a better idea of what happened here. In 853 B.C., Ahab and Ben-Hadad, okay, Aram, joined in this northern coalition to stop Shalmaneser's army at Karkar, okay? And the archaeological find on the bottom left, okay, is related to that Karkar. Ahab is mentioned in the Assyrian records in an inscription that accounts a battle known as Karkar between Ahab and Shalmaneser III of Assyria. And Shalmaneser records the size of Ahab's army that fought against him, and it mentions 2,000 chariots and 10,000 men of Ahab, king of Israel. So 2,000 chariots and 10,000 men of Ahab, king of Israel. Ahab again fought with Ben-Hadad um, at Ramoth-Gilead, 28 miles east of the Jordan and 15 miles uh, south of the Sea of Galilee and was killed, fulfilling a prediction by the prophet Micaiah in 1 Kings 22:13 to 19. Now Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, had allied himself with Ahab and was almost killed. And then King Ahab, we know, married uh, Jezebel. So these two women, I mentioned in the beginning of class, okay, I call Jezebel was in the north, Okay, so I call her the Wicked Witch of the North. And Athaliah, not her sister, she's really her daughter, but that's the Wicked Witch of the South. Alright, hope that doesn't offend you. Alright. <coughs> Baal and Asherah worship were common in Samaria at this time. So, it was also obviously common in Phoenicia. So, Phoenicia's over here, so it's, it's common here. The Philistines, obviously, they worshipped, right? Dagon, right? And Samson, that's Philistine stuff, okay? It's also common here. So what do you find? That Israel is surrounded by this pagan worship. That's how it was when they entered Canaan, right? The Canaanite Baal worship. So it's still the same thing hundreds of years later. And they're constantly being taunted and toyed with um, to worship this other stuff. So, um, in 1 Kings... 
21.8, it talks about Jezebel and says, She wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and sent letters to the elders and to the nobles. And so the seal that I mentioned up on the screen um, may have been one of those seals. Now, Ahab and the Baal worship in chapter 16 of 1 Kings, okay, is going to lead to Elijah and the Mount Carmel incident. The Mount Carmel incident is about who is God, okay? You can see on the, the uh, map here, maybe, over here on the right, this is the remnants um, of what they have found. On the, on the right, um, what's left of it, archaeological dig. All right, so Elijah then shows up on Mount Carmel and <coughs> confronts this whole pagan system, okay? So here's Mount Carmel over here, and we're going to deal with this Phoenician, and now more than just Phoenician, uh, pagan Idolatry. Elijah's name means um, God is Yah or Yah is God. And so he's going to stand up to his name. He's going he's to support what that is. Omri's just died. The capital is Samaria. And Ahab, okay, he reigns for 22 years. And there's a big mess going on. And this is where Elijah prays. You know, there's no rain for three and a half years. And the, the issue is who's to blame for this? What's going on? Is this Yahweh or is this Baal? Because remember, Baal's related to fertility, agriculture, all that type of stuff. And so Jezebel says Baal. Elijah says Yahweh. And, and that's the issue that's going on. And basically, Elijah is demonstrating, um, no, Baal is impotent. And I'm going to show you. I'm going to shut down the weather. Because you think Baal controls the weather. I'm going to show you he doesn't. I'm shutting down the rain. And so... That, that proves an identity crisis. And then, you know the story, or remember the story much, you know that he's going to call out the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, and they're going to come together. And then, of course, uh, he's going to wipe them out and tell the people, listen, you need to choose. Just like Joshua did in Joshua 24. He said, you got to choose who you're going to serve here, all right? Pick someone. Okay, stop sitting on the fence. And so the, that's what takes place with Elijah. Um, obviously, we're not trying to cover the whole Elijah stories here. So, two sons of Ahab um, come after him. Ahaziah and then Jehoram. Ahaziah rules only two years and dies without sons to succeed him, thus giving opportunity for the second son, Jehoram. Ahaziah died from wounds received in a fall. Two other matters from his reign are recorded. One is that Misha, the king of Moab, we've already talked about him, revolted against the heavy tribute posed by um, Omri. We mentioned that already. And then the other is that he entered into a joint maritime venture with Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. The ships built were all destroyed even before their maiden voyage. The destruction was in accordance with the prophet Eliezer's prediction, which had pronounced God's displeasure at the second instance of Jehoshaphat's aligning himself with the wicked kings of Israel. So one of the things you've got to realize is that as we're looking at God's plan in history, so the kingdom was divided as judgment. Right? And so now God views this aligning yourself with them 
as a not a good thing. Just like he doesn't view the alliances with Egypt as good, or Assyria as good, or Babylon as good. It's the same thing when they're trying to align themselves with uh, their sister, who's off in pagan land now, which basically makes them not much better than Egypt or the rest of them. And so Jehoram II <coughs> rules longer than his brother. He gets a total of 12 years. And Misha, again, he refuses to send the tribute imposed earlier by Omri. So Jehoram took steps uh, to get that, and Misha is able to, to save himself. Now, again, how do we know about this? The Moabite stone, right? Jehu, all right? So who, who should you be focused on, okay? This group of people right here, okay? Omri, Ahab, Jezebel, you should know them. Jehu, bloody Jehu. Okay? He's called Bloody Jehu for a reason. Okay? Alright. Jehu comes in and he kills Omri's descendants. Alright? The purge. He kills Joram, the king of Israel. He kills Ahaziah, the king of Judah, Joram's cousin. He has Jezebel killed. He has 70 sons of Ahab killed. He kills the royal family of Israel and many of Judah, and he killed a bunch of worshippers of Baal. That's why I call him Bloody Jehu. All right? He wipes everybody out. All right? We're getting rid of any kind of opposition. We're getting rid of anybody that's going to, you know, be in my way. So Bloody Jehu knocks them out. The Syrians are, are on the rise. Shalmaneser. He receives uh, tribute from Jehu in 841 showing that uh, Assyria is increasing power and Israel is decreasing in power. Whoever's paying tribute, uh, they're losing um, power. So uh, on the screen, you have a couple of items here. And let's see. The black obelisk found in Nimrud, in 1846, Shalmaneser lists the tribute, and he depicts the Israelite king bowing low in submission while presenting his payment. Okay, that's pretty common when you when you uh, look at these different things. They, they always show them, you know, bowing low. They're in uh, subservience to their the ruler. So Shalmaneser, Shalmaneser does not claim to have wrought destruction in Israel, but the heavy tribute he demanded was humiliating and economically oppressive. Shalmaneser made one more attack uh, in the general area three years later, claiming success once more, but nothing is known of the details. So no Assyrian army came again for a generation, which permitted Haziel to regain the strength to inflict the um, harm on Israel. So that's a four-sided, made out of limestone pillar. It stands six and a half feet, about this high. It's got five rows of reliefs and explanatory cuneiform inscription on all sides. In the second row on one side appears Jehu, um, and this is in the British Museum. The British Museum has quite a lot of uh, it's archaeological stuff. <clears throat> All right. After this time period, there's going to be uh, a short period of uh, independence between the two. As Laney refers to it, 835 to 740 B.C. is our time period, and 2 Kings 11 to 15, um, so four chapters worth, is the time. Okay, Jehoahaz, he succeeded Jehu, his father, and he reigns for 17 years, all right? 
Ahaziah um, is slain by Jehu during this time, and then you've got Jehoahaz, all right? So the only um, thing stated about him is, he, is the only item stated is that he sought help from God against Hezekiah and was given a deliverer in 2 Kings 13.5. Um, it's argued that this deliverer was the Assyrian emperor who came to the throne during Jehoahaz's reign, and he did serve as a deliverer to Israel that he attacked and crushed Damascus in 803, bringing relief to Israel from the Aramean oppression. And so um, that is uh, relayed in the archaeological information, but other than that, we um, there's, there's not a, a ton known about him. So the next guys, we don't need to say much about. You just roll right on through them. Alright. Jehoahaz, Jehoash, Jeroboam II, Zechariah, Shalom, uh, Menahem, Pekahiah. Um, then you get to Pekah and Pekahiah. And is assassinated by Pekahiah and sets himself up as king. Ahaz of Judah asks Assyria for help, and thus the, um, the Assyrian threat is starting to come home. Alright? It's starting to build. Pekah has allied himself with Rezin of Aram. And he's hoped Ahaz would do the same. This is what I was alluding to earlier. <coughs> All right. So as Aram is here, so you've got Rezin, and Pekah has allied himself. So these two are allies. All right. And he wants Ahaz to do the same thing. But Ahaz is down here. Syria for help and gets them off their back. That's what we were referring to earlier. All right. Now, there's a couple of kings in the south that we want to uh, touch on. So we're kind of backing up now. So rewind. Uzziah. Okay. Then we have an inscription. Okay. Demonstrating the, the, the rule and the reign of Uzziah. He was 16 when he became king. He reigned 52 years. In 1931, in a Russian Orthodox monastery um, on the Mount of Olives, a first century A.D. inscription was discovered bearing the name of King Uzziah. And it reads, Here were brought the bones of Uzziah, king of... Now, in addition to the fact that you're not supposed to be messing with, you know, dead stuff and whatnot, why would they not want to open the bones specifically of Uzziah? What do you remember about him? What did he have? He had leprosy. Right? So, unclean. So, um, we have that inscription found. We also have, related to Uzziah, okay, the seals. One seal says um, a steward of Uzziah, and the other says um, Shebnayahu, an official to Uzziah. And then there's an inscription from the Assyrian king Tiglath-Pileser that says um, Azeroth or Uzziah of Judah four times. That should be up on the other line there. Um, so four times it mentions the guy Uzziah. Okay, so we have a decent, I would say that's a decent amount of archaeological evidence when it comes to um, the reign of Uzziah. We get to Ahaz that we were just talking about right there. All right. 
We have two clay seals that have been found with the name of King Ahaz. The first seal, which is located at the Yale University, says, Ushna, an attendant of Ahaz. So I don't know if you're seeing a pattern or not, but a lot of times we're getting things from an attendant um, related to the king. And the second seal may contain the actual fingerprint of Ahaz. I don't have a picture of all these. I'm sorry. Um, I kind of just ran out of time. And the seal reads, Ahaz, son of Jotham, Judah's son. So not only is Ahaz mentioned on the seal, but Ahaz's father, King Jotham, is also listed on the seal. So again, for Uzziah, then for um, Ahaz, and both of them have some uh, archaeological finds related to them. That takes us down to the Assyrian domination, which is going to lead us to the fall of the northern kingdom. 740 to 722. So these last 20 years or so, Assyria is going to come in. Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria. We have quite a bit of evidence um, from him. These are just different archaeological Finds that are related to him. You got seals, you got reliefs, and um, whatnot. Here you have it says they had overthrown their king Pekah. Hosea I placed as a ruler over them, and from him I received a tribute of ten talents of gold and one thousand talents of silver. So here you have related to Tiglath-Pileser and how he came in and he was able to uh, take control of the area. As Assyria invades the north, we already mentioned the um, black obelisk and Shalmaneser that depicts um, Jehu in here. This um, screen what they think. So here we mentioned earlier about bowing down, okay, and paying our tribute monies, all right? So as Assyria invades the north in 2 Kings 17, um, that demonstrates that. And the next picture is just another image in charts related to um, the Assyria invasion, okay? So we're going to talk about Lachish in just a second here, which is located right here. So this is in territory of Judah. So as Assyria comes in, they're not going to stop here. All right, They're going to continue to try to take over the entire world. During this time period, just so you know, uh, Jonah, the book of Jonah is written. And so at this time, um, God had actually sent Jonah to go... Um, to the Assyrians, and he obviously goes the other way. So when you read about Tarshish being the opposite direction, yes, he's going out to sea this way, and he's supposed to go over to the Assyrians. Um, Isaiah is also taking place during this time period. <coughs> All right, the siege of Lachish. All right, as Sennacherib invades, he comes down through... Um, Israel, and then he's going to invade into Judah. Now, we already know that it's going to be 130 more years, okay, give or take, 130 years after the fall, which is the 722 of the north, right? So he's not going to take the whole thing. But he does invade. He does come down through here, all right? And you can see here with this inset, 
he, the, his route, he comes down, he snakes around here, the battle there, and then he's going to come towards Jerusalem, okay, and set up. Jerusalem is placed under siege. <coughs> All right. After the Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom, they proceeded south into the southern kingdom of Judah. In their advancement against Judah, the Assyrians decided to conquer Lachish before they took Jerusalem. This occurred for a few reasons. It's located in the, the Shephelah, that's those low hills of Judah. This region functions as the geographic transition between the, the coastal plain and then the hilly country, if you remember, all right? Like its companion valleys to the north, the Elah, the Sorek, etc., the valley in which Lachish lay was more cherished for its geographic setting as a buffer for Jerusalem security. The city of Lachish was established on a small hill that guarded the route from the Philistine plain into Judah's hill country, leading to Hebron. And since the city attended roadways that provided access to Jerusalem, the security of Jerusalem was intimately linked to the security of Lachish Fortress. Okay, so if you get through here, then you got access to here, right? And so on their road through, their way through here on these roads, that's where they're going to try to take out first. So um, Judah had become a vassal to Assyria during the days of Ahaz, but Hezekiah reversed that policy and withheld tribute when he learned that the invaders were distracted by internal political turmoil. Once he stopped paying tribute, we'll talk more about Hezekiah next week with, with Judah, but Hezekiah hurriedly prepared his city for the inevitable return of the Assyrian army, knowing that the window of opportunity would soon be closed. When the uh, Sennacherib brought his army back to the Promised Land, he conquered dozens of other cities, including the fortresses protecting um, the Ajailan Valley, the Sorek, the Elah, before turning his attention to Lachish. So Hezekiah's revolt took place during the transition that saw Sennacherib replace Sargon as ruler of Assyria around 705 BC. Hezekiah expanded and strengthened the walls of Jerusalem while constructing a tunnel that could bring fresh water into the capital city in the face of the Assyrian siege. That's one of the things that Hezekiah is famously known for, by the way. That um, I forget the number of days they finished it in. I have to look it back up. But they started at two different ends, and they met in the middle, um, blasting through. Blasting is kind of a euphemism here. Okay, They didn't have the blasting equipment we have. And they uh, were able to get this tunnel so that when they're in siege, okay, they still have access to water. So what you need to constantly remember is that warfare in the ancient Near East is primarily siege warfare. So if you want Jerusalem, okay, you surround Jerusalem and you cut off all access to it. Nobody goes in, nobody goes out without your permission. So how long are they going to last? They're going to last as long as they can eat and drink. So they do one of two things. They surrender or they starve. That's it. So which way do you want? Surrender or starve yourself out? All right? So Lachish, all right, is the city that he has sieged, all right? So the siege and the fall of Lachish also shook the foundation of Jerusalem. Hezekiah immediately recognized the peril that his capital Jerusalem faced, okay? They made it through Lachish, okay? Now they're going to come for us. Consequently, he sent messengers from Jerusalem to Sennacherib, urging him to withdraw. As an incentive to do so, he offered the king of Assyria 11 tons of silver and a ton of gold, emptying the temple and the palace treasuries in a bid to prevent a siege of Jerusalem. 
With Lachish securely in hand, Sennacherib knew he had a bargaining chip of indisputable value. So while he appreciated the significant sum of money that Hezekiah sent, he knew he could demand more. So he dispatched envoys to Jerusalem and demanded the surrender of the capital city. After all, I mean, what's going to stop you now, right? You got everything else. You might as well take it to that city, right? So to speak. <coughs> so that that is going to be the context for Hezekiah, and that's the context for Hezekiah when the 185,000 are killed by the uh, angel of the Lord. <coughs> so this is Lachish, all right? So this this hill here, all right? You're going to die on that hill. You know that phrase? Pick your battles. So this is where that all went down, all right? This is a little bit um, more modern, obviously. You can see, you know, the roads and whatnot. They look paved and whatnot. But so this is the, the way in. And the Sennacherib uh, relief or pillar. You have the relief on the left side of Sennacherib's siege of Lachish. Lachish. And then on the right, you have the terracotta prism describing the campaigns of Sennacherib, including the capture of Lachish and his siege of Jerusalem. Okay? So both of these demonstrate, once again, the historical <coughs> reality. And then this last one is of a battle scene okay, related to them as well. <coughs> So Jerusalem is in a, a big predicament at this point because Assyria has come all the way through and they're at their wits end. Who else are they going to appeal to? And of course, thankfully, at this point, Hezekiah has a moment of faith and trust and this is where he cries out to God and God, you know, he rescues the city. So when you, when you look at the divided kingdom and you look at what God is doing and, and what he is up to and how both the north and the south um, relate to what God is doing, you can see that they're not very faithful. You know, they're unfaithful, which is what brings about the, the judgment for this, this whole aspect. Okay? So, to kind of wrap this up, um, you, you mostly always want to know kind of first and lasts. Then key characters, right? So who's our first king in the north? Okay, so Jeroboam, right? So you want to know about Jeroboam? Okay, who's the first in the south? Rehoboam. Okay, so you want to know about Rehoboam? Okay, in between. covered the, the right column, okay, all the way through to the exile. So you can see Jeroboam's already bold print for you anyways. And then if you look at the, the fifth dynasty, Omri's dynasty, okay, which coincides with the alliance time period, okay, with your textbook. You want to know that section, all right? And it, it plays also into the Jehu. So number seven, eight, eleven, right? 
So basically what's right here on the board? Okay, Omri, Ahab, then bloody Jehu. Alright. These are your key players. As they connect with the south, um, you want to know basically how through Jezebel and then Athaliah, a marriage with Jehoram, the Baal worship gets brought south. Alright? And we'll talk next week from, from Hezekiah on. We mentioned um, Uzziah today. Or, um, so uh, yeah, the rest we'll kind of look at next week. Uzziah and Ahaz we mentioned today. <coughs> of course, I already said Athaliah. So on the south, those are kind of your some of your key ones that we mentioned today. All right, does that make sense? So, I mean, you don't have to know 40 kings. Um, you got to know the, the main guys. What keeps coming up is the archaeological evidence. A lot of it comes from where? What country did a lot of it come from that I kept sensing? Assyria. Assyria. A lot of it comes from Assyria. Why? Why? Because they record their victories, right? Why do you not find defeats listed? But because who records their defeats, right? So they record their victories. And so anytime that Israel is being um, oppressed or sieged or is under tribute, there's a decent likelihood you're going to find that listed somewhere maybe, right? If they're defeating Assyria, well, you might not find a record of that in the Assyrian records because they don't want to write that, right? So, so think through that process also. Um... See what else? Do you have any, any other questions um, related to this material? So on the two emails you sent me to us, you said is the list of what is going to be on the test. Yes.
Like you still need to know them. I don't I don't list it because it's just a given in my mind. But like this stuff here, like this, like you can probably count that 15 point question that was on the first exam. You know what I'm talking about? You had to label all the cities and the rivers. You can probably count on that being on this. So there's probably 15 of your points. You with me? You gotta know the geography. All right? So Assyria, Babylon, Euphrates, Tigris, Met uh, Mediterranean, Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, Dead Sea. All right? Hey, that's 15 of your points, right? So you only got like 85 left, right? So. So make sure you know that. 